Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're chatting with two of this year's Genetic Society award winners, Cecilia Lindgren, who's an expert on the genetics of obesity and metabolic disorders, and Lucy Van Dorp, who spent the past three years tracing the spread of SARS-CoV-2 around the world. 2023 marks the 70th anniversary of the description of the double helical structure of DNA, not the discovery of DNA itself, as some people mistakenly say. So what better way to celebrate than with a scientific conference? Don't tell me geneticists don't know how to have a good time. A couple of weeks ago, I headed over to Cambridge for the Genetic Society's Summer Symposium to mark the event, titled DNA, Past, Present and Future. It was a fascinating day of lectures from four of the recipients of this year's crop of Society Award winners. On the bill were Professor Doug Higgs, winner of the Genetic Society Medal for his outstanding contribution to genetics, and Dr Lucy Van Dorp, who gave the Balfour Lecture in recognition of her work as a young investigator. We also heard from Professor Cecilia Lindgren, winner of the Mary Lyon Medal, which rewards outstanding research in genetics from scientists who are in the middle of their research career. And Dr. Louisa Zolkiewski, who won the Bruce Katanak Prize for her outstanding PhD thesis related to the use of non-human in vivo animal models. There were also talks from the winner of the 2021 JBS Haldane Lecture, Professor Matthew Cobb, who gave us the inside track on what really happened between James Watson, Francis Crick and Rosalind Franklin during the race to unravel the structure of DNA. And we heard from the inventor of next-generation DNA sequencing, Professor Sashankar Balasubramanian. It was a packed agenda, but I did manage to catch up with two awardees, Cecilia and Lucy, to find out more about their work. Dr Lucy Van Dorp is a UCL Excellence Fellow and a group leader at the UCL Genetics Institute in London. If you're a regular listener, you might remember her from episode 16 in season 3, Sickness and Susceptibility, when we chatted about her work sequencing DNA from historic pathogens to learn more about our ongoing evolutionary relationship with the infections that plague us. At the beginning of 2020, Lucy got an opportunity to switch from studying ancient diseases to a brand new one as COVID-19 swept around the world. She set to work using her skills to track the SARS-CoV-2 virus as it spread and mutated in animals as well as humans, providing vital insights to help us understand and tackle the pandemic. I literally bundled her into a broom cupboard at the drinks reception after the symposium to find out more, so apologies for a bit of background noise in this one. But I started by asking her how she felt when she realised that she had a unique opportunity to track the evolution of a new virus unfolding in real time. I think the initial response was just compelled to help. When you people sort of felt that during the pandemic, they wanted to do something important. And I was in a luxurious position that I had this toolkit and, you know, ways that I could analyse genomic material. Actually, before the pandemic, I'd really only worked on bacteria. So I had to sort of co-op my skill set that was firstly wanting to contribute by analysing the genomic material, but also um, given the very large sequencing effort, the amount of genomic data that was being shared from a purely scientific point of view, it was really irresistible to try and understand how the virus was evolving and watch that in very close to real time because of the enormous sequencing effort. So tell me about the kinds of samples. How do you, on a practical level, get hold of COVID and sequence it and figure out what's going on? Mm -hmm. So uh, very many of the nasopharyngeal swabs that many of us were doing to check whether we were PCR positive for COVID 
that were being sent to sequencing labs to generate genomic material from the RNA from which you could assemble and reconstruct a genome. And this wasn't something that I was doing. This was something that many, many labs around the world were doing. And then making the decision to share that data on public genome sharing repositories so that other people could analyze it. So it was really quite an extraordinary effort from really very many labs around the world, really with the emphasis on data sharing and reusability, which allowed people like myself who are predominantly on the computational side of this kind of sphere of work to take forward and, and analyze the data. So as all these sequences are pouring in, you know, thousands of sequences from all over the world as the pandemic spreads, what were the sorts of things you were looking for? What were the, the patterns you were looking for? What were you hoping to see? So I think the initial question was just how much diversity is there? So is it the case that we have a very genetic homogeneous system, which would imply a young virus? Or is it very cosmopolitan, suggesting something that's been circulating for a really long time? We tend to think the former based on the kind of analysis that we've conducted. And then the next big question was, are we seeing changes in the virus in terms of the genomic content? So we have, in the case of coronaviruses, and particularly for SARS-CoV-2, the accumulation of around about two mutations or so a month. So are those mutations doing anything? Are they completely neutral to the virus or are they changing it in some way? And if they are, is that important? So we spent a really long time <laughs> tracking individual mutations. And I've worked in many microbial systems, but I've never fixated on individual mutations in quite the way that we used to with SARS-CoV-2 but trying to identify where we might see properties that might indicate changes or adaptation in the virus to human infection and trying to understand if those were concerning. So some of our early work was looking particularly for mutations that kept appearing, that kept appearing in different lineages, which we thought might offer useful signposts to potential convergent evolution. And it follows that as we had the emergence of different variants of concern, despite these being quite unrelated lineages, so emerging from very distinct parts of the phylogenetic tree or history of the virus, we were seeing the same mutations appearing again and again, and that's because they were useful. And we've all heard about the spike protein, and of course that's a real epicenter of mutations in SARS-CoV-2, and an area we're particularly concerned about in terms of evolution to evade, say, the immune response or the vaccine targets we've many of us have been vaccinated with. I'm just curious on a sort of technical level, who makes the decision when something's basically a new variant? Because, you know, we had Alpha, the OG, COVID, we had Delta, we had Omicron, the one that got me. What's the... Uh, variant and what's just like oh there's a couple of bases different yeah it's actually exceedingly difficult and even the terminology is poor so in some realms of genomics a variant would be used to describe a single mutation change rather than say a new lineage there is a set of criteria set out by the world health organization which actually doesn't really relate to the genomics of the virus but instead relates to properties of how we experience it so do we see lineages that are causing us problems in terms of our need for mitigation methods certainly thinking about vaccine efficacy or very high transmissibility to so higher growth rates than we would expect. But the actual kind of concrete evidence that this is a viral lineage, which is of concern compared to just different, is difficult and takes time. And so I think many of us will remember over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic kind of scare stories about potential variants that were going to be the new big problem. I embraced ones. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. But being able to confirm that, you know, we may well see viral lineages that are going up to high frequency, but that could simply be because of behaviour or founder effects or many other processes rather than the intrinsic behaviour of the virus. So it is one of those cases that it actually takes a bit of time and functional follow-up on mutations to really be able to say, this one is something we should be concerned about. So the nomenclature has kind of changed as of quite recently, but there was a state that variants were often considered as under investigation before they would get to the point of being called a VOC or variant of concern. You showed in your talk today how the different kind of big, big variants, the variants of concern had swept through. So we had Alpha, the OG, uh, Delta, and then Omicron. 
my question now is like, is there any alpha still around? Like in the UK, is it all Omicron all the time? So we, of course, don't sequence everywhere. So it's quite plausible that there are lineages that we've not sequenced or surveyed and we're not seeing. But given our current surveillance efforts, really Omicron is maybe 98, 99% of sequences. As far as I know, Alpha is largely extinct. Though for some of the other variants, there have been some observations. For example, the Beta variant has been picked up in some regions of the world. But really, we're seeing a regime where we are dominated by Omicron. One area that I think is important is looking at animal reservoirs. So the alpha variants, as we mentioned, is are still circulating within white-tailed deer, for example. So um, perhaps we don't see them in human infections, but some of these variants, and it's a bit of a mystery as to why, perhaps there's a different immunological pressure, or for some reason, some of the variants that are extinct within humans are actually persisting within animal reservoirs. That is what I wanted to come on to, because it's not just humans that get SARS-CoV-2. What do we know so far about the kinds of species that can catch this virus? I think the best thing I can say is like a huge number. So pretty much everywhere you look across the mammalian borders, you'll find some observation of either natural infections or infections that are possible in experimental systems for different animals. So I think this really suggests, and it's a property that is known of coronaviruses, is that this is a multi-host virus. Um, it doesn't struggle to infect many different species. And certainly we see a very large number of infections across a large number of animals. And I think it's a point that is probably fairly underappreciated is, is how many animals actually have been exposed and successfully infected by SARS-CoV-2. There are some quite intriguing examples where we don't tend to see infections. So dogs, for example, get infected, but they don't seem particularly transmissible. Um, there's not really been any reported infections in pigs, despite obviously the pig industry and humans being in close contact. So there's definitely work to be done there to understand susceptibility to infection in different hosts. But as a broad kind of tenant of what we see in SARS-CoV-2, it's, it's pretty good at infecting a very large number of mammals. And this is really important because certainly from what I know about the other coronaviruses and one of the main theories about where SARS-CoV-2 came from is that it came from animals to us. Maybe it can go back from us to animals. How do we keep a handle on this? Why is it so important to figure out what's going on and where this virus is going? Yeah, I think as a kind of broader property that there is a lot of microbial flow. I think that's difficult to quantify because, of course, not all exposures lead to infections, not all infections lead to nasty symptoms that we pick up. But I think in general, we do have a system where there is quite a lot of flow of SARS-CoV-2. The affected population sizes are massive. Humans are interacting with animals all the time. And the question is how concerned we should be. And I think the major concern is where we have cases of very established animal-to-animal -animal transmission following a spillover event. So not just incidental infections. And one example of this is SARS-CoV-2 spilling over into cats. You tend to see that those are a little bit dead-end infections and whether that's something about the cat biology or whether that's just simply the case that we don't tend to farm cats. Um, it's difficult to say at this stage, but I think, you know, when we see animal-to-animal -animal transmission, those are cases where we could then see viral adaptation and changes. And the reason that that might be a problem is because the virus is then exposed to a different set of immunological properties in the new host. It may evolve and adapt and acquire new mutations. It wouldn't otherwise have been human infections. And then we've seen that coronaviruses are quite good at infecting many species. So there's real potential to spill back into humans, providing a new set of mutations, which might create a combination which would be unfavorable in terms of the way that we're currently handling the COVID-19 pandemic. So SARS-CoV-2 is here. COVID is a thing. It's going to be a disease now we live with as a human species and not going away. But how do we use this kind of genomic surveillance technology in humans, in animals, in, in the environment? I, how can we stop the next pandemic? What should we be looking for? Yeah, and I think SARS-CoV-2 has been a useful experience in that regard. We need to think about the best strategies going forward. 
And as attractive as it would be to me as a genomicist, we simply can't sequence absolutely everything everywhere all the time. So I think lessons learned from SARS-CoV-2 is firstly that genomic surveillance can be or will be a mainstay of our response to future epidemics and pandemics. I think it's here to stay, but we need to think about what systems to target. Some suggestions are, for example, wastewater surveillance. So this is a way of monitoring what might be circulating in the community, trying to detect novel pathogens that might be changing in frequency. One other possibility is, for example, travel surveillance. So, uh, for example, sequencing potential infections at an airport, you can actually get quite a good representation of what might be circulating around the world by working in, say, just one place. But also kind of thinking about where we might have cases where we would detect viruses that might be of concern in particular species that might be of concern and what we do about that in terms of follow-up. And some strategies are, for example, to assess the ability of those candidate viruses that we might have sort of streamlined and pointed down to as being potentially concerning to assess their ability to, for example, infect uh, human cells in a laboratory. And then there could be scope, for instance, to preemptively design panels of monoclonal antibodies or vaccine targets in the hope that we won't need them, but to be ready to act quickly if the worst were to happen. So what I'm really hearing is that like the outflow from the toilets at Heathrow Airport, we need to be sequencing that. I mean, I'd be very interested in that. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. A couple of dates for your diary if you're a genetics researcher. The latest deadline for applications for the Society's Junior Scientist Conference Grants is coming up on the 1st of August, offering financial support for early career researchers to attend either online or virtual conferences. The 1st of August is also the deadline for this quarter's round of Heredity Fieldwork Grants, with up to £2,000 available to cover travel and accommodation costs associated with a field-based genetic research project. Head over to the Grants section of the Genetics Society website to find out more and apply. That's genetics.org.uk. Or follow the links on the page for this podcast on our website, geneticsunzip.com. If you've been paying attention to the health news, you've probably spotted the headlines about the latest weight loss wonder drugs that have got celebrities, as well as regular folk, dropping pounds with alarming speed. Weight loss is big business for drug manufacturers and the diet industry, but obesity is also a serious health issue, causing life-limiting problems, stigma and shame. And it's a problem that's expanding, with around two-thirds of the UK population now classed as overweight or obese. Cecilia Lindgren is Professor of Genomic Endocrinology and Metabolism at the University of Oxford, and also the Director of the Big Data Institute, or BDI, in the city. She's dedicated her career to understanding why and how people pile on the pounds and what we might be able to do about it. I started by asking her what we actually mean when we talk about this all too common health condition. So obesity is a common complex disease and with complex I mean it's a disorder that has a genetic or an inherited component and also an environmental component and in the environment are things like food intake, exercise, and also basal metabolism, which is how much your body basically burns in a resting state included. So when your body starts to accumulate fats, you basically start to store lipids into your fat cells, and then you get an increased fat mass in the body till the point where it gets damaging for the person who carries that fat. 
So we typically measure obesity by looking at body mass index, which is basically your weight over your height squared. So BMI is used as a proxy or surrogate measure of fat percentage in the body. And we say that somebody is overweight if they have a BMI that is between 25 and 30. And if you have a BMI of over 30, it's called obesity. So the more, I guess, conceptual question is, why do we need to study obesity at the level of the genetic, the molecular studies you do? I mean, there's a bit like, I don't know, just eat less, move more, the kind of conventional wisdom there. Why do we need to dissect it in the way that you and your team are? I think that's a really good question. So almost 2 billion people globally are overweight or obese today. And more than 64% of adults in the UK today are overweight and are obese. So it's really becoming an epidemic almost. The reason we want to study it is because very simply, if you want to lose weight, the thing you should do is eat less and exercise more. You will only really lose weight if you have a calorie deficiency. So basically eat less calories than your body's burning. So it's quite easy equation, but we know from decades of studying people now that it's not that easy. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Likewise. Obesity has a normal distribution in the population. So people will often come with the argument saying, you know, 50 years ago, nobody was obese. We know that it's the environment that has changed and that's the problem. And I will say, yes, we live in an obesogenic environment where there is a lot of food available uh, a lot of unhealthy food options and very calorie-dense food available. Nevertheless, some people are much more prone to develop obesity than others, and that's what we're trying to understand, to understand the underlying mechanisms in such a way that we can help further the biological understanding of why some people are more prone to get obese than others, and also use that information into thinking about therapeutical interventions. So let's dig into a bit about how do you do this? How have you been trying to understand the genetic contributions to obesity? What we do is basically assaying genetic variation throughout the entire genome in a large number of individuals. Each person has about 3 billion base pairs in the DNA. About every 350 base pairs, you have a genetic variant that will be different between different people in the population. And that gives us information about that person's genetic makeup. And if we see an association, we know that that variant or variants in the vicinity are associated with and potentially cause or contribute to causing obesity. What you're doing is basically like looking across little snapshots across the whole genome and saying are people who are overweight or obese, do they tend to have this particular version of their DNA compared with people who aren't? But to be clear, that's not necessarily, oh, that's a gene that you found that's like... We just know that somewhere in the vicinity of this bit of their genome, there's going to be a difference between people who are obese and people who aren't. That's correct. So we know that in about 80% of associations, like you just described, we're going to find them in parts of the genome that actually don't code for anything. And with anything, I mean a protein coding gene that will result into a changed protein and that then can be the thing that contributes to obesity. So the non-coding variation is really interesting because that's going to be where regulatory elements sit. Oh, the switches. Yeah, the switches that basically the on-offs, if you want to simplify it, 
of gene expression and therefore protein from the nearby genes, usually, not always. It could also be genes further away. So it's quite complex. So it becomes a bit of a puzzle that we need to sort of put together for each individual instance. Taken together, though, the information we get from many variants also gives us information about which processes are underlying obesity, which cell types and tissue types they operate in, which pathways is perturbated, and can give us clues into how obesity susceptibility is really orchestrated in the body. So that's what we're working towards, almost building a roadmap or, or like a puzzle instead of figuring out the sort of individual pieces in a person's makeup that puts them somewhere in the distribution of obesity or BMI. I was fascinated when you put up the results today in your presentation and you think maybe something like obesity, it's going to be about your metabolism. It's going to be about how much fat you burn and that kind of thing or how muscly you are. But it's so much of it is in the brain. Like that surprises me. So there's been decades of beautiful work from monogenic obesity. And with that, I mean, when you know that there is one single variant that is disrupted in a pretty brutal way that is causing disease, showing that predominantly it's a neuroendocrine condition leading to changes in how we perceive hunger in society. There are also animal models supporting this. So what we see for common forms of obesity, so there are a couple of things to think about there. So we similarly see a really strong brain signal, like you mentioned. So the accumulated evidence is that in brain. It doesn't negate the fact that there might be individual variants that operate in other parts of the body, but that's not the overall signature we see. So that's just really important to point out. Obesity is quite multifaceted as well. We can also look at fat distribution now because with new scanning techniques and fantastic resources like the UK Biobank, which we're proud to host in Oxford, you know, we have scanning data from hundreds of thousands of individuals and suddenly we can do genetic studies on a more precise phenotype. And that really gives us a clue into why some people are more prone to accumulate fat in the body. And what kind of difference are we talking about? You know, if you've got particular genetic variations that, for want of a better way of expressing it, like wire your brain up to make you want to eat more versus people who don't. What sort of difference to your weight is that going to make? So if you look at the individual common variants, they can vary from as little as 40 grams up to the one that I still think holds the biggest effect size, which is the gene called FTO, where each allele carries a kilogram per allele effect for an age and sex and height standardized person. So that simply means that if you're unlucky and have two copies of that, you're going to weigh two kilograms more than somebody who doesn't have any copy at all. If we look at the rarer forms of variants, they can carry as much as seven kilograms per difference per allele. Yeah. And accumulated, taking the, all the common variants and looking at them in aggregate, it can explain 10 to 15 kilograms of difference between people. So if you're really unlucky and you accumulate an unfavorable genetic makeup, you can have somewhere in the region of 15 to 18 kilograms difference, which is, of course, a lot. Now, I don't believe in deterministic approaches to this, so we can change it. And if we have unfavorable genetics, we're going to have to work much harder and it's going to be more difficult. And I think increasing awareness for many of us just in how small differences in food behavior can really sort of change 
a lot in your body weight. So for instance, if you eat somewhere in the region of 150 to 250 excess calories per day consistently, you're going to accumulate obesity. And that's not particularly much. So the concept that people think that you just eat and gorge yourself, I, I would want to challenge because I just don't think that's true for most people. And there's so much shaming going on in obesity, which I think is unwarranted and not helpful. I mean, that's also a glass of wine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or two. <laughs> There were some other interesting things that you picked up in your talk about where the field is going. And you mentioned the importance of diversifying the genetic information we have. This is something we've talked about on the podcast before, is that so much of the genetic data we have is from you know, people of European ancestry and most of the world is not people of European ancestry. What are you trying to do to change that? Well, so a few things. So first of all, I think it's really important. So we have to do science that serves all, because otherwise we're not going to provide betterment for all, which must be, of course, the goal with our science. So we're working on it in a couple of ways. So the first thing is that we're actively sort of trying to invite people from various parts of the world in participating in the projects we're doing so we don't become like an exclusive club. And we're trying to give them a proper seat at the table, which I think is really important. So there are quite sort of few data sets from other parts of the world still. So I think that there is a funding issue, which me and many other people are trying to sort of lobby around. So we have also stood up a consortium called the International Common Disease Alliance, which has 1,500 members over six continents and 43 countries, where we're trying to work to empower uh, people and help and support with fundraising in such a way that the science is done it's been incredibly rewarding, but quite labor intensive because it's so much that needs to be done. But I do think that if we want to do even basic science that serves all, we have to take upon ourselves to sort of really apply ourselves. And that's not just for genetics, that's for medical research overall, I feel. So that's kind of going bigger on the genetics data, bigger and more inclusive. But then there's the other end of it, which is actually zooming in because as we said at the beginning, just finding these genetic variations, maybe maybe you can pin it down to a specific gene. That's not necessarily telling us how it's working. But if you want to have a treatment, you kind of need to know how it's working, right? Yeah. So basically what we and others are trying to do is to build large-scale, systematic ways of looking at basically all the variants in the genome in a natural state uh, and trying to, in a way, shortcut the necessity of working on one gene at a time and do a large systematic screens where you can basically do um, molecular and cellular profiling of cells from biopsies from a large number of individuals in order to increase the robustness of your data. Um, but also to make sure that you get the full variation represented. And that becomes like enormous data sets, but it's really exciting. So you can then go from the genetic variation into the cellular function or the molecular function. And then what you want to do is to close the loop and link it back to the disease. And that's a non-trivial question to do, but a really exciting problem, I feel. So that then brings us on to the eventual outputs of this. We are starting to see commercial weight loss medications coming through to market. So what is the idea with that? How do we need to find these kinds of treatments? How are they going to work? I think it does offer opportunities for us to think that obesity is actually a disease that is worth treating, similar to that of blood pressure or high lipids in a preventative fashion. 
So currently, there's some amazing drugs on the market. I mean, they really do work. You can lose up to 16% of your body weight over 12 to 16 weeks. I mean, it's pretty dramatic weight loss we're talking about. And for a lot of people, that can really be the kickstart and the sort of positive boost that they need to get going and together with coaching and medical supervision, because they, you do need to change your eating behaviors and so forth. My word of caution would be that I wouldn't do it without a healthcare professional. I think that another thing that I'm interested in, so I'm interested in fat distribution, so where on the body you have a preponderance for starting to aggregate fat. And you can think about that as a metabolic as sort of part of obesity. And there are ways that you can think about drugging that, that as an alternative or in combination with the others will have a positive effect on obesity as well. So that's what my team is sort of thinking about at the moment. There's an interesting angle to this. So every time I read an article online about weight loss or particularly, you know, weight loss drugs or research into obesity, you always get people who always seem like Victorian moralists going, well, you just need to eat less and move more. And it's basically people's fault. There seems to be a lot of moralizing and you sometimes get the feeling that even if there was a drug that didn't have too many side effects, people would somehow think it's like, it's almost immoral because people should just be more disciplined. Yeah, so I, I think it's problematic as we just discussed. The way to lose weight in almost any instance is to have a calorie deficit generated in your body. And you basically do that by eating less and exercising more. And these drugs can sort of accelerate that process, but you still need to apply yourself to that process We've just talked about how some people, though, are going to struggle much more. And I think helping those individuals is of interest to everyone in health service and everyone in society. One thing you touch upon is the shaming of people for their body size. So we know that big proportions of healthcare service providers uh, feel that people that are overweight and obese are less worthy of treatment, which is, of course, problematic because 64% of people in the UK fall into that category today. And similarly, so in teaching professionals, there is also this sort of stigmatizing around obesity. And in the U.S., the problem is actually classified as serious as racism at the moment, that body shaming. I think if our goal is to have a healthy, happy nation, we should support each other to be as healthy and happy as we can be. There are no like straightforward, super easy answers to this. But if people have a chronic, severe condition and they're struggling, you would want them ultimately to get help and support. And I think, again, in combination with coaching and weight loss support, there is going to be a lot of opportunity for treatments moving forward. That's all for now. My thanks to Cecilia Lindgren and also to Lucy Van Dorp and to the Genetic Society team for putting on a great day of inspiring science. Watch this space for an interview later in the year with Matthew Cobb to get into the nitty-gritty of what really went down with Watson, Crick and Franklin during the discovery of the double helix. Next time, we'll be taking a closer look at what it takes to make big science happen. I'll be sitting down for an in-depth interview with Cordelia Langford, Director of Scientific Operations at the Sanger Institute, whose career has taken her from the early days of DNA sequencing using radioactive chemicals and a ruler, through to the birth and delivery of the Human Genome Project 20 years ago, and on to today's industrial-scale sequencing pipelines, churning out millions of genomes from humans and other species all over the world. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. 
You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And please, 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 please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or even a review on Apple Podcasts. It does really make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzip was written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo is designed by James Mayle. Audio production is by Emma Werner and the team. And our producer is Sally LePage. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.